There is something to be said about decapitation. <laughs> the head is, after all, the control center of our bodies. The corner office from which four out of five of our general senses comfortably preside, alongside the intangible little something that gives us that spark of consciousness, of life. What happens when the separation of these two parts, head and body, don't however immediately lead to infinite nothing? When a little bit of spark somehow still holds on to one side or the other? Welcome, my friends and loves. I'm Rocket Fox. Join me as we embrace the strange. Content warning for today's episode. While I won't be going into any explicit detail over gory matters, we will be covering a topic that, by its nature, involves injury, death, and will cover both people and a couple of animals. It's headlessness. Tread cautiously. Now, when I think of headlessness, aside from the unfortunate Marie Antoinette, one of the first figures to ride into my psyche is that of the dashing, strong, and silent headless horseman of Sleepy Hollow fame. Widely thought of as one of American literature's first official ghost stories, it tells the tale of bookish new schoolmaster Ichabod Crane and his fateful encounter with the ghostly Knight Rider. While it's a story that many are probably familiar with, it turns out there is much more to this legend than what unfolds in its 34 pages. The entity of the Headless Horseman dates back much farther than Washington Irving's rendition. According to the sources I found, some of the earliest mentions are of the Dolahan or Gancaean of Middle Ages Irish legend. This collector of souls carries his own at times glowing head while riding either on horseback or in carriage, when feeling fancy, and will stop at nothing to accomplish his grim reaperly duties, save, perhaps, a few gold coins offered at his feet. There is another known tale that dates to the 1600s, penned by the famous duo, the Brothers Grimm. In the story, Hans Jägentufel. There is a forest near Dresden called Lost Waters, where a woman is gathering acorns, minding her own business, like one does. She is suddenly startled by the sound of a hunting horn. And then a loud thump. When she turns, she sees a rider in a gray cloak astride a gray horse above her. She... Evidently much more carefree than I would be in the same circumstance. Pretty much shrugs and continues her acorn-collecting way. 
The next day, as she is walking through the woods, her path is crossed by the same gray-cloaked rider and horse, save one small detail. This time, he's casually carrying his own head. Hello! Introducing himself as Hans Jägentufel, he asks if she has permission to gather said acorns and shares the sad tale of how when he was young he drank too much and did what he liked, a life of excess that condemned him to an eternity as a headless spirit. The moral of this cautionary tale being don't steal or don't start conversations with recurring odd strangers who lord over you, either advice being sound. And no matter what story a stranger may tell you, you never get into his car. In the classic poem, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, there even appears a headless rider. To be fair, he's only headless after Sir Gawain decapitates him. However, he does continue to pick up his own head, remount his horse, and begrudgingly ride off. Mind you, not all accounts of headless riding legends are antagonistic, nor based in Western culture. From the folklore of India, there is the Jinjahar, originally either a prince who bravely fought to defend his village from attacks from bandits when he was sadly cut down, losing his head, or a cavalryman defending his prince and unfortunately succumbing to the same fate. Either way, these spirits are defenders who return to protect the innocent. As we return to the story of Ichabod Crane, however, it seems Washington Irving could have had another inspiration as well. It turns out, during the American Revolution's Battle of White Plains in 1776, there is an account of a certain Hessian soldier. These were certain German troops who had joined America in their fight against the British. It was written by American General William Heath that an artillery shell took this man's head clean off. It was also written that one of the artillery horses was left dead on the field. It didn't take long for ghostly word of mouth to spring up. It's said that the soldier's corpse was buried at the old Dutch church in Sleepy Hollow, which sat near another small village, Terrytown, New York. Whispers passed that the ghost of the man rose at night seeking his missing head, and, as ghostly tales so often bode, anyone ill-fated enough to cross paths with him would soon thereafter die. This myth became fairly widespread in the area, and certainly would have included Sleepy Hollow's quiet neighbor of Terrytown, which just so happened to be where a young Washington Irving lived with a friend during his teenage years. Of course, tales of ghostly apparitions that roam the streets sans head are just that, fabrications, stories that take shape much like the phantoms themselves, over time and space, each hushed word passed from friend to friend 
adding just a little more tangibility to their form. (laughs) They aren't real, though. Just reflections of our fears of the impossible, the unexplained, and our own mortality. One can't live, speak, nor act without a head or heart, right? The year is 1605. Against the backdrop of religious persecution, a small group of English Catholics secretly began planning what would notoriously go down in history as the infamous Gunpowder Plot, made more widely known in pop culture through the film V for Vendetta, despite the fact that Guy Fawkes was simply one in a group of participants. Another, however, was named Edvard Digby. Born to a Catholic family, Edvard managed to lay low and avoid a lot of hostility throughout his life, not really subscribing to the faith himself. And in 1596, he managed to marry the sole heiress to a considerable fortune, Mary Mulshow, who came from a staunchly Protestant background. Backed by his wife's social standing, Digby began to present himself at court and was very well received, it being said that he was an excellent horseman, musician, and swordsman. It was 1599 when one of Edvard's neighbors, Roger Lee, introduced him to John Gerard, a Jesuit priest. This was really the first year that he began to immerse himself in theological discussion and issues, even though he still avoided any indication of this publicly. When Mary inherited the family's estate, she called upon John Gerard to quietly convert to Catholicism, despite her evident disbelief that Gerard was truly a priest due to his skills in card-playing. Everard wouldn't find out about his wife's conversion until a later trip to London when he fell ill and, while being attended by Gerard, converted himself. He asked the priest to bring his wife to London so that she could also convert, to which the amused Gerard kept quiet, entertained to watch them try to convert one another. Now, it's not really known how Edvard became involved with the plot's conspirators. However, There are a few things that are certain. One is that he financed the plot to the tune of 1,500 pounds, which today would be about 206,815 pounds, or about $263,174. Additionally, he was tasked with gathering 100 Catholic supporters for a casual, run-of-the-mill, air quotes, hunt. Nothing to see here, folks. Everything's normal. During which, actually, they would capture Princess Elizabeth and start an uprising in the Midlands. Before the hunt could begin, however, back in London, the crux of the gunpowder plot had failed and people began to back out. 
Edvard made his way as planned, however, was captured and sent to the Tower of London. During his trial, when asked what his reasons for joining the plot were, Edvard spoke of his religion, his friendship and regard for Catesby, a fellow conspirator, and his fear of the harsher laws being made against Catholics, despite the current king's promise of the opposite. He also said that even though he deserved the vilest death by his own words, and didn't try to justify his actions, he did request that, due to his status, he had also been knighted by this very same king a couple years earlier, that he simply be beheaded and his family be spared, requests that were denied. He then, at the sentencing of his death, asked of the court, the same of which he had attended and been spoken so highly of in the past. If I may but hear any of your lordships forgive me, I shall go more cheerfully to the gallows. To which the lords responded, God forgive you, and we do. While he was not tortured during his time in the Tower of London, he did end up, along with the rest of the conspirators, being drawn and quartered. A truly gruesome death for another episode. During the disemboweling session of the punishment, it was widely reported by many, including Sir Francis Bacon, that when the executioner removed Everard's heart from his body, he held it aloft before the crowd and announced, Here is the heart of a traitor. After which... Edvard Digby himself responded, Thou liest. Granted, the heart isn't quite the same as the head, and it can likely be explained by remaining blood in the veins, the fact that one doesn't always die immediately after bodily injury, as horrific and grotesque as it may be, bearing in mind this, pardon my language, but heart-stopping moment would have followed Everard's being hung and cut down purposefully before death, and then disembowelment. Speaking as someone who has, in fact, stubbed my toe on more than one occasion. Mother! Having the strength, presence of mind, and will to speak at all with more of you outside than in, much less hear what someone has to say, is, in and of itself, otherworldly, in my humble opinion. Of course, there have actually been those who have asked these questions who are more well acquainted with the sciences than I. Through studies involving those who have had near-death experiences, in which their hearts have stopped, yet they are still able to report details about activity happening around them, it seems there remains some of that mysterious life spark even when the heart stops functioning. But... What about the head? 
researchers have recorded, the brain continues to emit delta waves, the kind seen in the third stage of deep sleep, for up to 30 minutes after the heart stops beating. Not quite holding a conversation level of activity, but it's something. Regarding consciousness, we look at a study that, I'll warn you, while no more morbid than any other content in today's episode, definitely falls on the more disagreeable side of my moral meter. A study was conducted on whether decapitating rats, a common method of euthanization in labs, is humane. I'll just let that speak for itself. However, what was taken out of the study that's relevant to our episode today are the results. An EEG found that for about four seconds following the event, the rat brains continued to produce brain activity between the 13 to 100 hertz frequency band, or the same frequency associated with thinking and consciousness. With far less guillotine usage today than in the past, and perhaps for another reason or two, it's unlikely that these same studies will be carried out on human subjects anytime soon. But it at least gives some insight into the possibilities of a brain, figuratively and literally, when suddenly cut off from its body. While there are more examples throughout history of odd headless circumstances, the one I wanted to end with today is perhaps the strangest. It was 1945, on a farm in Colorado, a day seemingly like any other. Farmers Lloyd and Clara Olson gathered up their tools for the task of the day, killing chickens. They had a system worked out where Lloyd would do the deed, and Clara would clean the birds immediately following, and, with a total of 40 to 50 to get through, the day moved like clockwork. That is, until one fateful swipe didn't quite land where it needed to. Oh sure, the head came off like the rest, and chickens have been known to move around a bit immediately after this sort of death. However, at the end of the day, this particular individual was still up and walking around as if nothing odd had happened. The chicken, who would later be given the name Mike, was placed into an apple box and set into the screen porch overnight. The next day, much to the family's astonishment, the bird was still alive and walking around. Lloyd had to take the dead, headless chickens to the market, but thought to himself, what the hell, so brought the still-living, headless chicken along for the ride in his horse and wagon. While in town, he bet people beers and such that they had never seen a living, headless chicken. And indeed, they had not. Word quickly spread, and a news reporter did a small story on the Olsons and their headless chicken. That was the real moment that things would start to change. The family farm was small, and in those days on the tail end of World War II, they were struggling. Two weeks after the write-up, they were visited by Hope Wade, a sideshow promoter who proposed that they take Miracle Mike, the headless chicken. 
a name that Hope came up with himself, on the road to make some money. The Olsons figured, why not? So that's what they did. They traveled to the University of Utah, where Mike underwent tests by intrigued scientists. They continued on to California and Arizona when Wade took on primary care duties while the Olsons returned to tend their farm's harvest. He continued the tour onward to Phoenix when, sadly, Mike finally passed away. How is any of this possible? And what happened in Miracle Mike's final hours? To first answer this, it's necessary to understand the biology of a chicken brain. For brains like yours and mine, they are situated higher in the skull, forward, round, and plump. These particular fowl, however, have a brain that is further back, lower, and, no offense to Mike, smaller. <laughs> when the hatchet came down that fateful day, it's thought that while the head proper came off, 80% or so of the brain was left behind, enough for Mike's body to continue to chicken. Now, there are certainly steps that the Olsons had to take to help Mike live their best life without a head. The farmers fed the chicken with an eyedropper straight into the esophagus and had a syringe to clear out the breathing passage any time it got blocked. And herein comes the sad, sad end of Mike. When the Olsons returned to their farm for the harvest, Wade, after years of denying what had really taken place, had Mike with him in a hotel room, and sometime during the night, woke to hear the sound of Mike choking. Realizing he'd left the vital syringe in the car, he ran out to get it, but by the time he had returned, Miracle Mike had finally gone the way of all good chickens without their heads. that being said, I, for one, am going to opt to keep both my head and my heart where they reside. For now. But who knows? In time, as our understanding of the ways in which the brain, heart, and body work together, we may even gain a better understanding of what constitutes consciousness, or what transitions that little spark of electricity into the magic we call life. Thank you so much for joining me through the Fantastically Strange. I hope that you've enjoyed our journey. Come visit for a spell at fantasticallystrange.com and on Instagram at Fantastically Strange, and Twitter at Fantastic Odd Pod. If you've enjoyed the show so far, please let me know. Maybe even a follow, share, or review. I write, research, edit, and do all of the things myself, so your support means everything to me. I am so honored to be able to bring you stories about the topics that I'm passionate about. And if you have any questions, comments, or... Topics you'd like to see covered, or just to say hi, send me an email at fantasticallystrange at rockatfox.com. 
We are officially live on Apple Podcast and Spotify, as well as some of your other favorite podcast locations. Now, if you would like to show your support, as well as get early access to episodes, bonus content, such as an outtake or two, <laughs> and other goodies related to my other work, I wouldn't say no to you visiting patreon.com slash rocketfox. All sources, music, and sound effects are linked and credited in the show info. The amazing logo illustration is by Constance Hermit, and the killer intro song, Hey Dorothy, is by Cruise Machine. Thanks again, and I can't wait to see you next time. Surround.